saving money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards, we have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hello and welcome to This is Critical. I'm Virginia Heffernan. My guest today is Julia Mae Jonas. She's a playwright and a theater director, but she's published her first novel. And I think it's a bit of a masterpiece. It's called Vladimir. But if you think that sounds kind of twee, especially that title and that it's a novel, you are wrong. I have been reading this book, which is legitimately shocking. And so has one of our producers, Michelle O'Brien. And because I just can't get it out of my system, I had to have a quick chat with Michelle before we bring on Julia. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited, Virginia. This book, can I can't get it out of my head. <laughs> All right, we have a book about a 58-year-old woman who meets a beautiful, significantly younger man. He's 40 and a new junior professor at the college where she's tenured. They are, of course, both married with children. She becomes obsessed with seducing him which would mean exploiting the professional power dynamic between them. And then she gets panicked that she's not hot enough to do that the honest way. So she exploits a power dynamic even more. And then her effort at seduction becomes coercion, kidnapping, drugging, and assault. I mean, my question for you is, is what the actual fuck? Virginia, On top of this, in addition to all of this misconduct already, this is taking place in the backdrop of a small English department at a small liberal arts college where the narrator's husband is under investigation for consensual, maybe not consensual, affairs with the students in his department over the years. So it's all a mishmash of sexual misconduct left, right, and center. I mean, I I don't think I've been shocked by a book in a long time, and I did find this this shocking. Absolutely. Absolutely. And at a base level, it's kind of audacious just because of its take on older women's sexuality, right? In the popular culture, we don't often see older women horniness taken seriously. It's often played for laughs, right? Like uh, the Golden Girls or Grace and Frankie or every Nancy Myers movie ever made. So I feel that in this book, Julia May Jonas has given us a really different depiction of what it is to be a sexually charged woman, right? That's exactly right. I mean, and then there's the cover. And I sat on the subway many a day with this book in my hands. And it's like a Fabio porny cover of this like shirt unbuttoned, you know, sexy guy with abs and whatever else. Maybe actually, Michelle, can you read that passage when she sees him coming out of a swimming pool, I guess? And you really understand how hot this guy is. And then we'll bring on Julia to just finally make sense of this. Absolutely, I would love to. 
When he came out of the water for lunch, he rubbed his stomach slowly and flagrantly, a completely unnecessary use of the towel meant to draw our eyes to his abdominals. Either he was flirting with us or he flirted with everyone. He hung his towel around his neck and kept his shirt off to eat. He was obviously vain. He ran his hands over his hair many times in order to hide the thin spot on top. I mean, come on. The thin spot is also just like a little miracle of writing. It's just like the little imperfection that makes him all the better. You get in those hints the the thing that I think is important in the book, which is, is he just flirting with everyone or is he as drawn to the narrator as she is to him? That's what I'm going to ask. I really want to ask Julia about. I can't wait to hear it from her. So here is my conversation with Julia Mae Jonas. Julia, welcome to This is Critical. Thank you so much for having me. I am a little bit too eager to have you here and so eager that I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how the narrator of your book, Vladimir, would dress for a Zoom call. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And I so there's makeup involved. There's hair involved. So maybe you can tell me how your unnamed narrator might handle a Zoom call to help us get to know her. Sure. I mean, I think she might use or have someone help her put in a kind of filter to make it more appealing. And I think she would definitely get a light. I think she would do a little bit too much research to her own chagrin (laughs) about what could make her look better. All right, let's go back a bit. For people who aren't, who haven't been living and breathing Vladimir, like, uh, like the producer Michelle and I have for the past month or so, Tell us about the characters. Let's start with the unnamed narrator. Yeah, so she is a 58-year-old college professor, and her husband, who's also a professor, is being investigated for former past relationships with students when the novel opens, essentially. And then there is also the younger man, the man in the title. Tell us Mm -hmm. a little bit about him. So Vladimir is a 40-year-old experimental novelist who has gotten the position at the college where the narrator works. And he's had one semi-successful novel, successful in a literary way, but not in a necessarily commercial way. So as her marriage is uh, under strain, the unnamed narrator becomes completely fixated on this man, Vladimir, who's, uh, who's almost 20 years younger than she is. And the examination of his body just the beautifully detailed, heavily eroticized description of his body. I don't think I've ever read a description of a man like that before. Well, definitely what I'm trying to do is think about the way that we might have a female writer look at a male body in the same way that female bodies have been looked at by male writers for eternity. And certainly, I mean, it's worth noting that the title of the book, the title of the Object of Desire is the same first name as Nabokov's, and clearly there are parallels with Lolita. I mean, not just not just the name Vladimir, but also the fact that these are two literary people, um, Nabokov's antihero, Humbert Humbert, and your unnamed narrator. And they are kind of brilliant at these physical, sexualized descriptions of their objects of desire. And they end up kidnapping their objects of desire. Um, you know, it took me a while. It, t- I was, it took me, it was slow, right? But slowly, of all the shoes that drop while you're reading it, one of them that you might be reading a female Humbert Humbert is just, it's, your blood runs cold and hot at the same time. 
Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I was reflecting today about when Lolita first came out, Nabokov had to do all these interviews in which these male critics would be like, Humbert, Humbert, what a fantastic guy. Lolita, what a temptress. And, you know, Nabokov kind of laughs his way through and feels very uncomfortable answering these questions. And I think what I was really interested in was thinking about an anti-heroic female narrator who is extremely charismatic, who does the same thing, who tricks us, Yes, you know. And with her sophistication. So there was, I taught Lolita for a little while and there were always very earnest, mostly women in the room who were concerned simply that it was a novel about child molestation. And that was, seemed like certainly a legitimate reading. But there were others who, like the people you say, who interviewed Navikov in the early days, male students, who just couldn't break with Humbert Humbert because he's so sophisticated. He uses Russian phrases. He uses French phrases. He's got great taste. He's funny. And, you know, we're willing to countenance Mm -hmm. this relationship with Lolita because it was something Humbert Humbert wanted. And for an American reader especially to say, I just find Humbert Humbert so disgraceful, is to forfeit the possibility that you might be a guy like him. Right, right. A man of the world. So your narrator's her sophistication Tell me a little bit about that, too, because I I found that very interesting. Yeah, I mean, again, thinking about the Nabokov comparison, I remember in an early interview, they asked him, you know, in what ways are you like Humbert Humbert? And he says, well, I'm a man of letters. Um, And I thought very much about what it would mean to be a, a woman of letters and what position that puts her in as a female intellectual and what permissions that gives her, what perspective that gives her, um, and how she can use that to seduce us, really, as as a reader. She, um, one of her tricks to seduction, which is all too familiar to me, is to read Vladimir's book really closely and then give him just like incredibly attentive feedback. She writes about it in raptures, but she's obviously completely enthralled him otherwise. This is a question I have, maybe not everyone has. Is Vladimir's book all that good? Right. I think it is. You know, she says at some point that it loses itself in the final third. And I think it's true. I think it is one of those books that sets out as very kind of impressive from a literary angle and potentially starts to peter out as the voice wears on you. I mean, that's how I always imagined it. <laughs> I'm so glad because you know how in I saw this show called The Affair. I don't know if you saw it on HBO. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Right. And it was supposed to be about a great novelist. And you got to see bits of the great novel that we had to accept as great. And it was obviously terrible. And so this like uncanny valley opened up where you could no longer trust him to be brilliant. Yeah. You know, and I wondered about this with with Vladimir. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I speak with Julia about what happens when an older feminist feels like younger women are coming after her for crimes against feminism. That's next. Save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money. 
The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. We're back with Julia Mae Jonas, the author of Vladimir. So as we mentioned, the book starts with the scandal around the narrator's husband, John, who's been sleeping with students. And they're in sort of an open relationship, so he's not exactly cheating, but he's now accused of taking advantage of the students and might lose his job. I mean, you know, the affairs are said to be consensual. I think they were consensual. And I think then the question is, what are the power dynamics that were at play in those consensual affairs? He wasn't sexually harassing them, but he was having affairs with students. So, th- And that puts your narrator in this, in this really interesting position, sort of one that uh, Hillary Clinton found herself in and other wives of men caught up in Me Too situations, which is, are they kind of accomplices to sexual misconduct by staying with him or by staying silent or not speaking up against it. So this lifelong feminist finds herself in this position with respect to her Zoomer millennial students. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, especially, I think particularly for her in her generation, what she's the way she's had to separate her professional life from her personal life, the way women, you know, still have to do, but I feel like a generation or two before me, they had to do it even more, which was, you know, not bring your children up at a meeting, not acknowledge that you have children if you're working in a professional space. You know, make very, very clear lines between your husband and yourself, your work and your husband's work. You know, I think she's worked incredibly hard to do that. Um, and so the fact that she's then becoming implicated in it, I think is is very enraging to her. Yeah. Then I think the greatest speech of the book is when she gives that extraordinary, perfect speech to the young women that hits every note to show that she's in solidarity with the younger students who appall her and kind of, you know, have her over a barrel mm-hmm. um, with mm-hmm. their criticism. I uh, I generally am on the side of the students in these equations, right? But Mm -hmm. this time, I could see them from her perspective as just incredibly threatening. Yeah. And I think that she she is often on the side of the students, too. I think that's why she's able to kind of, you know, finesse that situation so well. She talks always through the book. She's, She's back and forth on how she feels about them in a way that I feel like I've I've noted in in colleagues and in certain situations where it's on the one hand, you know, so admirable. They're right. They're passionate. They're trying to change their institutions. Who cannot admire that? And simultaneously, just the nature of youth coming at people inside of establishments is you want to burn that establishment down. You know, of course, that's the impulse. It's understandable. And I think she does feel she does understand that. And I think it's almost because of the fact that she understands that 
that it feels so, so deeply offensive to her because she feels like she's trying, she's on their side in a certain way. And then they're casting her in this role that she doesn't feel like she, she fits inside of. Yeah. I mean, what I have sort of really appreciated learning, and I'm, I'm a closer in age to your narrator, I think, than you are. Um, but I've, what I've really appreciated learning from millennials and younger women is a lens through which the events and relationships that I saw as transgressive as a young woman that are seen as traumatic, you know, and that those two things have to kind of live together. And, you know, one doesn't supersede the other. So usually the woman my age says, oh, but these are consensual and there are ways that, you know, these young women are having sexual agency. And then the response is, but there is no agency, you know, in that kind of power dynamic for the woman. And this was you know, this crushed me. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think there might be, and you accomplish it here, actually, a way of sort of living in the flicker of transgression and trauma. Yeah, I think that I hoped, um, I, of course, like, wanted to write about a character who has moral ambivalence. I mean, that was kind of the 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 project. If there's any project of the book, you know, that's the advocacy. And, you know, can I write a book that offers a lot of different situations without any clear sort of answer about it? And so I think she really is, like you say, caught, I think it's very well put, caught inside of that flicker. You know, pain exists, trauma exists, transgression exists, power, you know, an ownership of our own power exists, you know, we're sexual beings, you know, I mean, sex just exists. That's one of the conundrums. It's like, it's like eating food exists. You know, we have to navigate a relationship with it. Yeah. Um, There are certain things like if you're an alcoholic, you can stop drinking alcohol potentially. And of course you could, I suppose, stop having sex, but that doesn't, you know, mean it goes away from our interactions. And so it is just a tricky, almost unsolvable thing to navigate. Yes, or or yeah, or solving is not maybe <laughs> our right relation to it. Right, um, exactly. There's no solving. There's no solving. But one of the things your narrative sets out to do is somehow solve it. I mean, or she she has some idea that Vladimir Vladinsky, which is his last name too, makes him um, very romantic in the Tolstoy tradition, even though he's also like a Brooklyn writer schmo. Right. Um, but in any case, he's catnip to the narrator. And she believes somehow if she can, it's not clear, possess him sexually, have sex with him once, that something will be solved. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I think she's very turned around about what this desire for him has done to her. So I think she herself doesn't know exactly what the outcome will be or what the idea ideal outcome, what would happen, which I think is for many of us, you know, the case with our fantasies. Yeah. You know, there are these fantasies about things that could happen. And then the actual what happens next is not fully thought out. But I think she is very interested in playing with the danger of herself having some agency or being the one who desires or being the one who acts Uh, who acts. Uh, And I think that's the real reaction that I was interested in playing with too. And that's why there's the context of John and his students and the fact that she's implicated in all of that was the idea of someone who is, who is taking and synthesizing that information and acting uh, in a way. That, um, the speech she gives to the young women 
who are coming to accuse her of of complicity in her husband's crimes is just this really weird masterpiece. I could never have thought of it, but it's like she acknowledges homo and transphobia and all the possible angles that um, where axes along white supremacy and misogyny. And she's yeah. able with this expansive view of social justice to make the students really feel hurt. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I think that's because she's a skilled teacher inside a world of academia, which, you know, I mean, I think not for ill are those concepts very frontal, you know, when you're teaching students right now. So I think she's aware of trying to put everything in a context of like structural inequality. Yes. And how she herself is operating inside uh, structural inequality. The person who um, recommended the book to me, my my friend Mike Albo, he's a writer and he loved the book, but he said um, that her experience in that moment where it's as though something in her ugly, complicit with the worst of misogyny, almost violent, is about to be exposed. When he's had a moment, you know, that terrifying moment where you think you may have misunderstood or misspoken, and now you're, you know, like part of the worst hegemonic view. Um, he said, like, that was worse than as a child when, like, people teased him about being gay. It was like mm -hmm. a secret horror inside you that you must harbor, you know, terrible beliefs that are always going to betray you. Um, and I felt like in that moment when she gives that perfect speech, you just see how much labor it takes for her to, you know, be sexually transgressive, but not too aggressive. Just all this time walking this tightrope. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that something you were sort of thinking through? Well, it brings to mind... It brings to mind something that my my friend said when she read it, where she said, gosh, one thing that I felt like as I was reading is it feels so sad that these female academics are finally coming into their, their power where they're creating the culture of an institution. And then they have to back down. They have to be, they're put down in this particular way. Or they, you know, have to... Uh, be so careful that they they never get this actual chance to enjoy a kind of free maybe exchange of ideas. That's not particularly answering it, but I do feel like she's someone who is smart enough to know that the world is shifting underneath her, but she can't escape her own given circumstances and where she came from and the schools of thought she grew up inside of. And so that creates the tension and, and creates you know, the, the, the conflict inside of her, I think. We're going to take another short break. When we come back, the novel Vladimir draws explicit parallels with Lolita. But when it comes to the ages of the characters, Julia chose to make the one in her book an affair between two adults. We find out why. Stay with us. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. 
Ashley High Performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. We're back with Julia Mae Jonas, the author of Vladimir. Julia, did it occur to you to make Vladimir even younger? Because he's 40 to her 58, and she's old enough to be his mother Mm -hmm. legitimately. And yet, I don't know exactly the difference between uh, Emmanuel Macron and his wife, but I think it's in the double digits, right? The age difference. So this is one that we roughly countenance, you know, Mm -hmm. unlike the relationship between Humbert Humbert and Lolita, um, you know, did it occur to you that you might make him a teenager, that you might create even more risk? And why did this feel like enough to both be transgressive and also, you know, not totally unconscionable? Yeah, I mean, I felt like, first of all, I wanted everything to be gray. I didn't I didn't want there to be a black and white situation about whether it was appropriate or not. Um, I wanted it to be possible that they could um, have a consensual affair with each other. And I think in some ways you could even read the book and there's an idea that Vladimir might have been willing to go along with it the whole time. But she is so wrapped up in the idea that he wouldn't. She's so wrapped up in the idea of her own self-hatred and her own self-disgust that uh, that she she forces this action, even if it may not have necessarily been necessary. So that that was one aspect. And then the other is that, you know, Vladimir is someone she lusts after, but he's also someone she wants to be. He mm. has a young child. He's at the beginning of his life. He's at the beginning of a promising career. He has all of these uh, things that are set up for him that she envies and wants, not just from a a personal point of view, but creatively and as an artist. So he had to be someone who who had a sense of being in his prime, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, you're right. He has what she doesn't and what she's losing. And presumably he has more lust than she does because she's worried, except that he doesn't seem to. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, I mean, I think he's he's currently in also a, a sexless marriage, which helps, I think, stoke her fantasies when she learns about the fact that, that his relationship is not very sexually fulfilled. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know you've been wonderfully restrained with the narrator, and I've seen you asked before many times, you know, how do you feel about her? Because your readers, and probably mostly your female readers, are like Nabokov's male readers, a little mm-hmm. bit too eager, eager to, you know, identify with her. But you had to write her in some way. Where did you find your most connection with your 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 horny, unnamed narrator? Oh, yeah. I think where I find the most connection with her when I think about it is inside of her physical being. You know, there's that line that she says very early on where she says, I've always felt anger in my vagina and I'm always surprised that it's not mentioned more in literature. Um, You know, which I think of, if there's any line in the whole book where I'm like, well, that's me, uh, it would be, (laughs) it would be, you know, that line. So I think in, in any kind of, I mean, of course, as a playwright, I write characters 
And those characters can't all be good or else you would not have a play. You can't agree with them all or else the play would not exist. But you still have to inhabit them, yes. you know, not to become too... I, I don't know, spir- spiritual woo-woo or, or whatever it is, but you still have to kind of in, live inside their bodies and, yeah. and write from them and not, and not judge them in that way. But I, so I feel like the, the attention to what's going on inside her body is the place that I probably accessed myself the most. Yeah, I really like that. I also, you know, there's such a nice job that Nabokov does and Lolita, and I realize for listeners, it's not for all tastes, but he makes it very, very clear that Lolita has nowhere else to go and that she's crying. You know, I think he believed, and it does to me seem quite clear, that he finds Humbert Humbert, as you would say, an anti-hero, despicable. He's one of Nabokov's, like, kind of loathsome, vain, pretentious characters, not, not a dashing man of the world like he thinks he is. So tell me other places that you laid in that your narrator is not someone we should have a lot of confidence in as a moral being. That's interesting. I think certainly her views about what she feels like about her students. And I would even I would even like take away the idea of it it being a moral thing, but for example, you know, throughout the book, she she has these sexual encounters that she recounts to us from her past and with other experiences that she's haunted by. So she's telling us, you know, that this is all part of um, being powerful, sexual females. And then at the same time, um, she's recounting things that happened to her when she was 14 years old that fill her with with dread and and shame. Yeah. Um so I think that's certainly a place and and she's certainly consistently revising what she feels about John's behavior and the effect on her students. And I do think there's the final conversation with Edwina, one of her students that really never gets finished. Um, where she's unable to see what Edwina is saying to her. And she allows herself to kind of blissfully turn her attention from it because Vladimir walks into the room. But there's a real argument that Edwina is making that she ignores in that situation. I think that's a perfect example. I'd also say her relationship with her daughter, there's some almost like monstrosity in there, but maybe not audible, visible to everyone. Mm-hmm. She certainly casts her daughter in a role of being her, you know, her drinking buddy, her her friend. Yeah, she's asking for her daughter to be something um, that is not exactly a, a, a motherly request. Yes, and she's sort of disgusted by her daughter. Like, the descriptions of her, like, with the little pimples around her mouth when she's hungover. Right. All right, what were some of the most surprising reactions to the book? I mean, I, I think I'm very surprised when I feel like I feel like the book is very clearly kind of anti a piece of of advocacy. Mm-hmm. And I feel like my main surprise I always feel like is when I feel like people are uh, talk about it in terms of the narrator espousing an opinion that we're supposed to take from 
the book. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, of course. I mean, to me, it feels like she's so clearly unreliable and she's complicated. But I think people just have a very hard time with females who are morally ambivalent. We can look at Tony Soprano mm-hmm. and we can be mm. very clear that this is a bad guy who we also have this kind of complicated, loving relationship with. And also he's awful and it's sad to watch him, you know, fall apart. Of course, that's very clear because he kills people and he's a mob boss. <laughs> and this is operating in a much more gray space. But I am I am just consistently surprised that I feel like people can't see through the unreliable narrator. You know, I think of I think of how in a book like Remains of the Day with Kazuo Ishiguro, you know, how that narrator is is telling us one thing and we see another reality yes. behind it. And those two things are in tension with each other. And it doesn't, it's horrifying. It also doesn't render him the worst person of all time. It renders him kind of a sad person yes. in, in a certain kind of way. But somehow, sometimes I feel like people can't see through that. I mean, I it's also, I think, a problem with even this format, this podcast format, um, mm-hmm. in talking about literature. Yes. It's, it's very difficult because you want to, quote, peg it to issues, right? Yeah. And have it speak to certain things. And I just want to say to listeners that this book is suffused with irony and every bit as good as Nabokov. And bring, as you read it, bring your literary interest to it. I mean, you can enjoy the erotica. I, I assume that's okay. <laughs> that's okay with you. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, every no one is as they seem in it, and that's what makes it fascinating. Thank you. That's a that's a very high compliment. And and yeah, I mean, I'm also just I've always been interested in books in which you know you're learning more about what you're seeing as it's going along. Yeah, I feel like that's what I was attempting to do in a way with her. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Julia. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. That's it for this week's episode of This is Critical. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode on the subject of slime and sexuality by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you listen. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people learn about the show. For more information and to keep tabs on us, follow me on Twitter at page 88 and at this critical pod. If you've got a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Ella Fetter and Michelle O'Brien are the producers. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical. Stitcher. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. 
Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.